Hey everybody, Tom Panneries here. Uh, before I we begin this uh, special episode of In Country that's dedicated to Platoon, I wanted to send out some thanks to Scott Gardner. Uh, this weekend I got uh, a package from him in the mail and I opened up the package and it was a promo poster from uh, 1986 for the NOM that he had and took to Megacon and gave it to Michael Golden and Michael Golden signed it uh, to me and uh I was completely floored, completely did not expect uh, something like this, and it was really awesome. So again, I just, Scott, thank you very much. It was That was so cool, and um, I really, really, really appreciate it. So uh, I will post a picture of the, the poster up on the, the show notes for this episode, and uh, and I hope you guys, I'm glad, you, I'm glad everybody who's written in has been enjoying uh, the podcast, and I hope you guys enjoy this episode and many, many, many more to come. In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom presents Platoon. Hello and welcome to In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. This time out, I'm taking yet another break from my issue-to-issue coverage of the comic book to bring you the first of what will be several episodes of the show about Vietnam in the movies. It won't be several episodes in a row, several occasional episodes, as next issue will be back in the Nom with, uh, with the next issue. Because while the Vietnam War uh, probably isn't the war with the most movies made about it, I would have to say, off the top of my head, I'm going to say World War II. There are several significant films that were released in the late 1970s and in the 1980s that were important pieces of our popular culture, especially when it comes to telling the story of the war. I plan on, over the course of this series, covering quite a number of them, from the more notable films such as The Deer Hunter to movies like even Missing in Action and television shows such as Tour of Duty and China Beach. To start us off, I'm choosing a film that came out just as the NOM was getting started, and that is Oliver Stone's 1986 film, Platoon. While Platoon is not Oliver Stone's first film, it is the film that really launched him to the level of an elite director, as it was nominated for eight Academy Awards and won four of them, including Best Picture and Best Director. It came out in limited release on December 19, 1986, going to wide release on February 6, 1987, which is about two or three weeks after the release of the NOM number one, which means it's more or less a coincidence, or at least serious foresight on Marvel's part, because the early success of the series was obviously Marvel being right on trend for its time and having something out to capitalize on what was a growing interest in American entertainment. But the film itself has a lot more to it than simply coming out around the same time as the NOM debuted. It is and remains one of the most important portrayals of the Vietnam War in film. And what I'll be doing is giving some behind-the-scenes information as well as talking about the film itself. My personal experience with Platoon isn't anything significant, although I didn't see it until about 1996 or 1997, after years of not being allowed to watch it. When it first came out on video, I remember that my friends and I were at the height of our action movie craziness. 
We'd watched Commando at my friend Evan's house at some point in late 86 or so. And then we went on this like Schwarzenegger spree, watching just about everything that was available to us. In fact, I think we all held on to Schwarzenegger probably up and through True Lies and even Eraser, uh, which was the mid-90s. Anyway, Platoon came out on video in the, la- in the later part of 87. Most of my friends saw it and raved about it. And I remember that my dad wouldn't let me watch the movie, even though I begged and pleaded. About 10 years later, we were at my Uncle Lou and Aunt Jerry's house for Christmas, and he let me borrow his copy of Platoon, which I took home and watched. My dad was surprised I'd never seen it. I explained that he wouldn't let me see it when I was younger, and that I had simply lost interest in watching it. When I finally sat down and watched it, I could see why he wouldn't let me watch it when I was 10. For the purposes of this episode, I rented the Blu-ray from Netflix, and honestly, uh, it's only the second time I've watched it. Uh, as much as I enjoy, enjoy putting this podcast together, I'm not really a war story, war novel, or war movie type of person. There are quite a few that I enjoy, but I don't readily seek out a war movie. Uh, the Blu-ray is very nice. It has some nice extra features on it, which I poked around with when I had the time, but um, but didn't like you know dive in depth because uh, just for time constraints. Uh, but the movie transfers very well to digital format, and I'd recommend picking it up. But before the Blu-ray, before the VHS, and before the film was released into theaters, the movie had to be made. And the story of Platoon actually goes all the way back to 1968, which is the year that Oliver Stone was released from service in the Army and returned home from the Vietnam War. Shortly after returning, Stone wrote a screenplay called Break and began trying to get it made, even getting some famous people interested at one time or another. For instance, in 1971, Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, was considered for the film's lead role, but of course we know he unfortunately passed away that year, and apparently had a copy of Stone's original script in his apartment when he was found dead. The screenplay floated around Hollywood for years, and Stone began his directorial career breaking through with Salvador in early in 1986, and the script this movie, now called Platoon, was eventually picked up, and the film would wind up being distributed by Orion Pictures, which is one of the more prominent independent studios in the 1980s. Now, it wasn't shot entirely on the cheap, but its budget was sparse in places, and in order to make his portrayal of his experience in the Vietnam War realistic, Stone filmed on location in the Philippines and put the cast through actual military training. Uh, which meant quite a lot and uh, basically providing one of those experiences that would allow them to really understand both their characters and their character's experience. Dale Dye was the military consultant on the picture. He's been a consultant on several movies and television series, and he's also the co-creator of Code Word Geronimo, an IDW comic series about the Navy SEAL mission to capture Osama bin Laden. He's also the founder of a company called Warriors Incorporated, which provides military training to actors for military roles. It was a concerted and successful effort to create a realistic war film, especially since it was based on Stone's own experiences as a member member of the 25th Infantry Division, which, by the way, is the parent company, so to speak, of the 23rd Mechanized that we're reading about in the NOM. In our look at the comic series, we are seeing the men of the 4th Battalion, 23rd Infantry Division, Mechanized, of course, and they're part of the larger 25th. The 25th, by the way, is currently based out of Hawaii and is nicknamed the Electric Strawberry or Tropic Lightning because its insignia has a lightning bolt inside a red tarot leaf. 
The 25th was started in 1941 and has been portrayed in films such as, well, of course, Platoon, The Thin Thin Red Line, and The Best Years of Our Lives. Famous alums, aside from Oliver Stone, include, of all people, Ice-T. Yes, the rapper. In fact, according to Ice-T's Wikipedia page, he was in the 25th and got arrested and thrown in jail as part of a group who stole an infantry rug. He eventually escaped from jail and deserted for for about a month or so, returning when the rug had also been returned. He was given an Article 15, and he eventually finished his military training. But back on topic, uh, Platoon depicts some of the men of the 25th who were involved in various patrols along the Cambodian border, which climaxes in a battle on New Year's Day 1968, a battle that actually happened and that Stone was praised for realistically depicting. The New Year's Day Battle of 1968 was an immediate precursor to the Tet Offensive. At the time, there was a truce that had been brokered by the Pope, and the 25th was located in the Tainan province near the Cambodian border. Their mission was to cut off supply lines for the NVA and VC along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. On the night of January 1st, there was an NVA attack starting at about 11.50 p.m. that came in three waves, with heavy mortar firing starting about 11.50 and ending with a large-scale troop attack at about 1 in the morning. The American forces were eventually able to repel the attack, although mostly through air support, but suffered about 176 casualties with 23 reported killed in action. 31 days later, on January 31, 1968, the NVA launched the Tet Offensive, something that we'll get to within the next five episodes or so as we head toward January and February of 1968 in our look at the NAM. But the plot of the film and the historical context, while important, really aren't as important as its characters, because the film is basically a character-driven piece. And as we'll see, that's what makes the performances as good as they are. Your cast, by the way, I'll get into the individual actors and individual roles, but you've got Charlie Sheen, Tom Berenger, Willem Dafoe, Johnny Depp, Kevin Dillon, Keith David, John C. McGinley, and Corey Glover, yeah, the lead singer of Living Color, among a number of other great performers. And it's that which connected with audience as the movie made $138.5 million and was the third highest grossing film of 1986 behind Crocodile Dundee, which was second, and Top Gun, which was first. And by the way, just in case you want to know how good a year 1986 was for movies, here's the rest of the top ten. So we've got Top Gun, Crocodile Dundee, and Platoon. The Karate Kid Part 2, Star Trek IV The Voyage Home, Back to School, Aliens, The Golden Child, Ruthless People, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'd say the worst out of all of those is probably The Golden Child. I don't remember actually liking that movie very much, but, you know, your mileage may vary. As I mentioned earlier, it was Platoon was nominated for eight Oscars and it won four, winning Best Picture, Best Director, Best Sound Editing, and Best Film Editing. It was also nominated for Best Original Screenplay, Best Cinematography, and Best Supporting Actor, both for Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe. The Best Supporting Actor Oscar, by the way, went to Michael Caine for Hannah and His Sisters, which he was not there to re- receive because he was in the Caribbean filming Jaws the Revenge, a movie that I'm ashamed to say that I saw in the theater. Anyway, that's a cursory background on the making of and performance of Platoon in the theater. If you rent the Blu-ray, you can watch some in-depth making of featurettes that show uh, how they recreated the war 
and some of the other things. There's a commentary with Oliver Stone, and I believe there's also a commentary with Dale Dye. So uh, they really do get pretty in-depth on how this was put together. As for me, I'm going to take a quick break, and I'll come back and talk about the movie's characters, plot, and my own thoughts. Hey guys, Tom Panneries here, inviting you to check out a new graphic novel series written and drawn by NAM artist Wayne Van Sant called Katusha, Girl Soldier of the Great Patriotic War. This is a story of courage, survival, and family, of self-sacrifice, betrayal, brutality, and suffering. It is a tale of love told against the backdrop of the bloodiest conflict in human history, the 1941-1945 war between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia. Seen through the eyes of a 16-year-old Ukrainian girl, Katusha is not only a coming-of-age story, but a carefully researched account of one of the most turbulent and important periods of the 20th century. The story opens with Katusha's graduation from her 10th and final year of school. The next morning, Sunday, June 22, 1941, Nazi Germany invades the Soviet Union. The girl and her family flee to the forest to begin a partisan war against the German occupiers. Finally, Katusha enters the Red Army, where she is trained as a tank driver. Her unit fights in the Battle of Stalingrad and Kurtsk, and then pushes the Germans across Ukraine into Poland. By 1945, Katusha commands her own tank and takes part in the final battle for Berlin. Books 1 and 2, Edge of Darkness and The Shaking of the Earth, are available for purchase in both print and digital format at granddesign.net and are really worth checking out. So head over there to support Wayne Van Sant's Katusha, Girl Story of the Great Patriotic War. And now back to In Country. In 1967, Oliver Stone was a combat infantryman in Vietnam. He was wounded twice and received a medal for gallantry in action. Ten years later, he was a Hollywood screenwriter and the winner of an Oscar. But even after many successes, Stone still had another story to tell. A movie that grew out of his own experience. Stone has come a long way from Vietnam, but he has not left it behind. I got a bad feeling on this one, all right? Watch out! Rocket! People say I'm the life of the The first real casualty of war is innocence. The first real movie about the war in Vietnam is Platoon. Platoon opens with the following title card. Rejoice, O young man in thy youth. It is part of Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verse 9 which reads in full, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou 
that for all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. We then see Chris Taylor, who's played by Charlie Sheen, arrive in Vietnam, a fresh-faced kid from the States who is eventually placed with Bravo Company of the 25th Infantry near the Cambodian border. We're placed right into the action in, in a matter of speaking, as the soldiers of the 25th are shown humping it through the boonies, and we see that Taylor is clearly a greenie. He vomits from the heat and seeing dead bodies and gets freaked out by the ants that are crawling all over his skin. Taylor voices over at this point and for the most of the film and, uh, and, and, and does this for most of the film in letters to his grandmother, who we will find out is probably the only person in his family that he still keeps in contact with, as he enlisted, and this put him on the outs with his parents as a result. Actually, this is a good opening to the movie, because we not only get Taylor as a greenie, but we also get banter between soldiers and we get to know who is who. Tom Berenger plays Sergeant Barnes, the heavily scarred and intense squad leader that's a direct contrast and antagonist to Elias, who's played by Willem Dafoe, and has more of a, I guess you could say, spiritual air about him. Taylor's voice over as we see in the opening of the film and we see the soldiers walking through the jungle make sure to point out where the soldiers are fighting the war come from. Well, here I am, anonymous, all right, with guys nobody cares about. They come from the end of the line, most of them, small towns you never heard of. Pulaski, Tennessee, Brandon, Mississippi, Pork Bend, Utah, Wampum, Pennsylvania. Two years high school's about it. Maybe if they're lucky, a job waiting th- for them back in a factory. But most of them got nothing. They're poor. They're unwanted. Yet they're fighting for our society and our freedom. It's weird, isn't it? They're the bottom of the barrel and they know it. Maybe that's why they call themselves grunts. Because a grunt can take it. Can take anything. They're the best I've ever seen, Grandma, the heart and soul. It is a point that should not be lost on readers of the NOM and definitely wouldn't be lost on readers of most war novels either. The trope of the average soldier being a poor kid fighting a rich man's war is so common that it's almost universal at this point, especially in books and movies about wars like Vietnam. So we know that this is going to be from the point of view of the average grunt who is definitely humbled and humiliated by his war experience and not, say, the John Wayne type of war hero, quote-unquote, which is what you would get in a movie such as The Green Berets or the Rambo, Braddock, 1980s action stereotype type of character. So about 20 minutes in, we have our first moment of action. An NVA patrol comes up on the group while they're sleeping, and there's a firefight. Well, to be more accurate, Taylor finishes his watch shift and then tells Junior, played by Reggie Johnson, that it's his turn to take over. And Junior promptly falls asleep, and this allows the NVA to get the drop on them. It's a scene that's shot with very tight angles and gives us the feeling of claustrophobia, which I think is what Stone was going for. Uh, Taylor's clipped by a bullet and freaks out, but winds up being comforted by Big Harold, who's played by Forrest Whitaker. We then head back to the hooch and we begin to see some development of Taylor's character as well as some of the other guys. King, who's played by the always phenomenal Keith David, bonds a little bit with Taylor while they're doing some work and invites him to Elias' place where the guys are listening to Jefferson Airplane's White Rabbit and getting very, very high to the point where Elias points the barrel of a rifle at Taylor tells him to suck on the barrel, and then blows smoke through the barrel, basically making the barrel of the rifle the bong. Meanwhile, over in Barnes, uh, Barnes's hooch and with Barnes are several other guys, including Kevin Dillon's bunny, who is a bit vicious. Uh, John C. McGinley's O'Neill, who constantly kisses Barnes' ass so he can get some sort of preferential treatment, but also seems to carry the reputation of being a lifer. And 
Mark Moses, uh, who you may recognize as Duck Phillips on Mad Men, uh, as Lieutenant Wolf, who even from the outset we can see is completely out of touch with his men. In fact, what the scene here serves is not only to show us the different type of groups that were in Bravo Company, but the stratification between the officers and the non-coms. Stone does a good job of having Wolf wear a college t-shirt and a college ring in this scene, and it's clear to see that he's your typical all-American type. Plus, we have the black versus white issue, which we've seen pop up from time to time in our issues of the NOM, and we will see again. So Taylor winds up getting in with Elias' group, and we begin what Chris eventually will describe as a struggle between Barnes and Elias over his soul. Around New Year's Day in 1968, which puts us about a month before the Tet Offensive, the 25th humps some more into the, and in the course of the day come across a bunker in the jungle, and Elias does the tunnel rat job while Lieutenant Wolf gives some orders that, well, annoy the other men, including Taylor, which I think is a subtle way of showing that Taylor's become more experienced and is bonded with the guys, as opposed to in the beginning of the, the uh, movie, where they really just wrote him off as being this greenie who has, you know, is worthless. As the group takes a look at the bunker, we have a lot of silence, which increases the tension effectively, especially when the scene ends with one of the guys finding a stack of papers and setting off a booby trap. Soon after, one of the men, Manny, is found executed, and as a result, Barnes takes control of the men and leads a raid on a village, giving us a scene very similar to what Alarnik had been doing in recent issues, where the guys find people hiding in huts, and we just see how far some of them will go. The most egregious of these is Bunny, who shows himself to be a pretty savage person as he berates and then beats to death a crippled villager as well as his mother, and the tailor stops him from raping a young girl. Barnes, who, like I said, has been leading this, has Lerner, played by Johnny Depp, translate what the head of the village is telling him, and doesn't believe it when the old man says that the NVA forced them to hide a cache of weapons that they just found. Barnes then shoots him in the head and threatens to kill the entire village, taking a man's daughter and putting a gun to her head to get, to get him to confess that they're all lying to him and that they're all VC. Elias interrupts the entire proceeding, and he, he and Barnes then get into a fist fight, which obviously shows the conflict between the two and the struggle of the platoon, and also winds demonstrating more of Lieutenant Wolf's ineffectiveness, especially since the only thing that Wolf can do is give the order to torch the place. In fact, from what I understand, uh, sometimes platoon is shown, or Wolf is used as an example in army training as to officer training as to how not to be an officer in the United States Army. Later on, we meet Captain Harris, who's played by Dale Dye, who was, of course, the film's military consultant, and he wants a full report about what happened, trying to mediate the conflict between Elias and Barnes, which is essentially Wolf's job, and he's doing it for him. The next time we see the group in the jungle, Taylor and Elias talk. It's a beautiful night. Yeah. I love this place at night. The stars. There's no right or wrong in them. They're just there. That's a nice way of putting it. Barnes has got it in for you, doesn't he? Barnes believes in what he's doing. And you? You believe? In 65? Yeah. Now... 
today is just the beginning. We're gonna lose this war. Come on. You really think so? Us? We've been kicking other people's asses for so long, I figure it's time we got ours kicked. Taylor takes this seriously since Elias is supposed to be the sage of the group and since he's also been there for three years. But then there's an ambush. Wolf doesn't know what to do and calls in an airstrike. Elias, however, has been in situations like this before and knows where to go and who to go after and takes off with a few men while the rest of the 25th are getting torn apart. And to this where Barnes loses it on Wolf because his hesitation has gotten men killed and then orders everyone to fall back, not caring if Elias, who is now alone in the jungle trying to get the jump on the MVA, who are killing all of them, will be cut off. He orders Taylor and the others to fall back and he, and, and he says that he's going after Elias, who is sneaking through the jungle. But Barnes isn't there to help Elias. He's there to kill Elias. Barnes shoots him three times. Nobody sees it. And when Taylor comes upon Barnes as he returns for the dust-off, Barnes tells him that Elias is dead. But he's not. And as the chopper flies through the air with everybody on it, Taylor spots Elias. And we see him being chased down by several NVA, dying in a Christ-like pose that has become iconic and is actually based on a famous photograph taken by a time photographer named Art Greenspan during this time when he was embedded with a group of soldiers near Hue in 1968. That particular image of a soldier with his arms outstretched toward the sky became one of the most famous of the war. If you'd like more information about it, I've provided a link to Time, a Time Magazine piece in the show notes for this episode. The scene itself, by the way, was used for the, the VHS box and I probably more than one poster. After this scene, Taylor gives Barnes a knowing look and later tries to convince the other guys that he knows Barnes did it and they should frag him. Barnes interrupts them, though, and he's drunk and he gives a drunken speech about being a soldier and being part of a machine. Right on. Taylor, I remember when you first came in here telling me how much you admired the bastard. I was wrong. Wrong. You ain't never been right about nothing. And dig this, you assholes, and dig it good. Bond's been shot seven times. And he ain't dead. Does that mean anything to you, huh? Bond's ain't meant to die. The only thing that could kill Bond's is Bond's. Talking about killing? Y'all experts? Y'all know about killing? Well, I'd like to hear about it, potheads. You smoke this shit so to escape from reality? Me, I don't need this shit. I am reality. There's the way it ought to be, and there's the way it is. Lice was full of shit. Lice was a crusader. Now, I got no fight 
What any man does what he's told. And when he don't, the machine breaks down. And when the machine breaks down, we break down. And I ain't gonna allow that. Many of you. Not one. In this scene, he's incredibly intimidating. Even if even though he's drunk. Taylor assaults him anyway, and he seems to get the upper hand at first, but Barnes just pins him down and cuts his cheek with a knife. The 25th is eventually sent back into the same jungle the very next day. The situation is one where Bravo Company is going to be the bait to lure out some of the enemy, and that implies that this is clearly a bigger battle than simply a sweep of the village. As we enter this scene, Taylor is clearly sinking lower into whatever disillusionment that is set in, telling King it's the way the whole thing works. That's the way the whole thing works. People like Elias get wasted. People like Barnes just go on making up the rules any way they want. So what do we do? Sit in the middle and suck on it. We just don't add up to dry shit. Whoever said we did, man. All you got to do is make it out of here. And it's all gravy. Every day, the rest of your life, gravy. Oh shit, super lifer. Hey, King, collect up your shit. Your orders just come through. Oh, look, man, don't fuck with me. Oh, what, do you need a written invitation, for Christ's sake? Cocksucker, oh, wow. The lifers that made a mistake. They cut me some slack, Taylor. Look, you get your pig to Rodriguez. You got ten minutes to make the last fucking chopper out of here, man. Because if you're not on it, I'm gonna be. Taylor Francis is coming up. That's great, King. I'm happy for you, man. You're taking on home for me, okay? You got my address. You know where you can get a hold of me anytime, right? <laughs> I got a DD, man. I don't want to miss that chopper. You okay? Yeah. Remember now, take it easy. Don't think too much. Don't you be no fool. Remember, ain't no such thing as a coward out here. Don't mean nothing. My man. I'll walk you out, man. Take it easy, King. I'm gonna take it any way I can get it, brother. I hear you. In fact, I really like the fact that King makes it out and is okay, uh, just because the whole the death, the moment you're about to leave thing is pretty cliche by now. <laughs> anyway, the attack begins that night, and it is bad. Taylor's in a foxhole and fights as best as he can, while most of the men of the 25th wind up dead. We get a director's cameo in a bunker as Oliver Stone is on the radio trying to get some help and then winds up on the wrong end of a suicide bombing. So they're completely overrun. O'Neill saves himself by hiding under a body and some others make it out alive, but when Taylor wakes up the next morning, he's just among ruins and bodies are everywhere. It's then when he spots Barnes, wounded but alive, crawling on the floor of the jungle. Taylor picks up an enemy AK-47 and walks over to the sergeant who looks at him and says, Do it. And Chris shoots him three times. Taylor gets put on a stretcher. O'Neill is given command, much to his dismay. Since right before, especially since right before the battle, he'd been trying to get some leave. And Chris leaves the Nam with the following voiceover. I think now, looking back, we did not fight the enemy. We fought ourselves. And the enemy wasn't us. 
The war is over for me now, but it will always be there, the rest of my days. As I'm sure Elias will be, fighting with Barnes for what Ra called possession of my soul. There are times since I've felt like a child born of those two fathers. But be that as it may, those of us who did make it have an obligation to build again. To teach to others what we know. And to try with what's left of our lives to find a goodness and meaning to this life. The film closes with a dedication to those who fought and died in the Vietnam War. I'm going to take a quick break and when I get back I will offer up my thoughts on Platoon. This book is to be neither an accusation nor a confession, and least of all, an adventure. For death is not an adventure to those who stand face to face with it. It will try simply to tell of a generation of men, who even though they may have escaped shells, were destroyed by the war. This July 28th, In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom, presents... All quiet on the Western Front. I'm Tom Panneries, and to commemorate the centennial of the First World War, I will be dedicating a special episode to Eric Maria Remarque's all-time classic war novel. Along with the look at the novel, I will discuss two film adaptations, and then take a quick glance at poetry and songs of the war to end all wars. That's this July 28th, at incountry.podomatic.com. So Oliver Stone uh, basically, obviously has a reputation for films that are both opinionated and controversial. When I was checking out his IMDb profile as part of my research for this episode, and I was actually a little surprised by the number of movies he's done that I've actually seen, and a number of which I've actually liked, um... I think it's because going into an Oliver Stone film or any film that is topical in that sense, I try to judge the film on its merits as a story and try not to let myself get like persuaded by the writer or director's opinion. Stone definitely wants us to see the horror, the inhumanity of war in a way that really isn't anything that, well, not it's not that new, to be honest. In fact, there are shades of previous Vietnam War films, such as Apocalypse Now, which incidentally starred Charlie Sheen's father, Martin Sheen, uh, as well as well-known literature uh, like Lord of the Flies or Heart of Darkness, neither of which are war novels per se, but have that same feel to them. And Heart of Darkness, of course, uh, not surprising because Apocalypse Now is an adaptation of Heart of Darkness. I have no problem with it. In fact, what problem I may have with this is wouldn't be with Oliver Stone, but more with the people who pick up a movie like Platoon, see it, and decide that that's the only final last word when it comes to a depiction of an event of a historical event such as the Vietnam War as we've seen just in reading the Nam there's a lot more than simply the horror of war uh, granted the Nam has its flaws uh, the least of which that have to do with yes it's a comics code approved book and has to work within the comics code standard and no story is perfect anyway but that aside platoon is an excellent and essential piece of cinema when it comes to telling the story of that war or of any war. Looking at it on its own literary merits, 
You have a story of loss of innocence, a loss of humanity, and a struggle for a young man's soul. You have an illustration of how people can sink to the depths of inhumanity and savagery that we wouldn't have thought possible. You have an illustration of how the army and the war creates its own culture and its own sort of world. And it is a good film. Stone's work during the last couple of decades, since about maybe the mid-90s, has been hit or miss. But Platoon is a film that shows a director who is still young and still hungry, and it's really tight. It's only about two hours. A movie like this made today by a more experienced director, um, maybe a a Martin Scorsese or maybe even an Oliver Stone of this time, would probably push three. But this is a tight two hours. And Stone shoots some of the battle scenes with, like I said, a sense of claustrophobia, especially the ones that are at night. And he puts us in the moment in the sense that we don't know what's going on beyond what one or two characters, and that's usually, of course, Chris Taylor, Charlie Sheen's character, is seeing. Granted, he was working, like I said, he was working on a budget that was smaller than your average Michael Bay movie. Uh, So he couldn't do the sweeping battle scenes and the grandiose special effects and had to keep things tighter and, and, and sparser in some cases. But then again, do you really take a war like Vietnam and do sweeping World War II-esque battle scenes with it? Beyond the writing and directing is the acting, of course, and that carries the movie in a way that good acting should carry a movie. This is Sheen's breakthrough role. When he had, I mean, he had other credits up until this point, TV movies and things like that, and, but they were mostly small parts, uh, and most audiences, well... Okay, they may have recognized them, especially if they were they were teen moviegoers. They may have recognized him from perhaps uh, his very small role in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, Lucas, or uh, Red Dawn. But Platoon, it's Charlie Sheen's break breakout role, of course. But it's not just a Charlie Sheen movie. Uh, there's a reason that Tom Berenger and Willem Dafoe were nominated for Oscars here. Dafoe is appropriate... I hate to say weird, because back in 1986, like, weird is like David Bowie in Labyrinth. But uh, he just nails the character of Elias. His face, the way he acts, the way he conducts himself in the role. It's like you couldn't have put anybody else in that role. Maybe Johnny Depp now in that role but Johnny Depp's actually in the movie but Johnny Depp was about like 19 or something back in 1986 this was about a year or two before Jump Street so he wasn't nobody knew who the hell Johnny Depp was aside from uh, if you'd seen Nightmare on Elm Street so but Defoe Defoe and Berenger Berenger Berenger's freaking scary as Barnes and Behringer's got Behringer's always had this hard-looking face, and they put makeup on him to make the face look harder. And what's funny is that reading about the movie is that they were, at the time, cast against type. Behringer usually played like kind of the nice guy role. And the two other Behringer movies I'd seen before this were uh, Eddie and the Cruisers, which I did a pop culture affidavit episode a few months ago, about and the big chill and in both of those he's playing a nice guy he's playing he plays uh frank in in eddie the cruisers the keyboardist the the main character who's you know is kind of all shucks nice guy type especially in the younger scenes and a romantic 
And then in the big chili place, uh, the the one of the crowd who became like a TV star, he's plays like TJ Racer or something. Or am I confusing that with Ro- the, that 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 TV show in RoboCop? He plays basically <clears throat> in the big chill. He plays basically plays Tom Selleck because the character that he his job he's a big shot on a TV show that's basically Magnum PI. So he plays nice guys. He's not used to playing these things. And apparently, I hadn't seen Defoe in anything before this. I don't think most people had. But apparently, Defoe was used to playing nicer guys, to playing different people too. So, and this worked. This worked phenomenally. Beyond these three, though, um, you have an excellent supporting cast. So it's not those. It's not just these three who carry the movie. I love Keith da- Keith David. I love seeing him stuff. He's so great in here as King. Uh, and, and, uh, I love, like I said, I love the fact that he gets on a chopper at the end of the movie and lives because you half expect that sort of mash moment of the chopper getting shot down on his way out. John C. McGinley, who I love, loved as Dr. Cox. I even love him in his very small role in office space. What would you say you do here? Um, he is so great because O'Neill is just such a smarmy kiss ass, and oh man, he just—he's so great in that. And Kevin Dillon as Bunny, um, this who—who's kind of the guy who kind of emulates Barnes, but doesn't have the sort of um, charisma that Barnes does. So he's just more the savage. He's—he's um, he's Heather Duke to Heather Chandler, and then you've got uh, Reggie Johnson, Corey Glover, Forrest Whitaker, Mark Moses. Everyone in this movie is just excellent, and, and, and that's why I say you really, really need to see this film. It's one of the rare times when the film and its story are able to transcend um, a lot of the underlying politics. I mean, they're still there, but you can shut that out and not feel obligated to think that this is the final word on the war and say to yourself, okay, this is one portrayal of the war, just like this movie might be another one, and this comic book might be another one, and this novel might be another one, and you can appreciate this story for what it is. Because although it does get heavy-handed at times, um, I don't know, I just felt like, okay, I can just enjoy the story for what it is, but maybe, maybe that's just me. But it is... Um, and I, I'm and I'm gushing, and I realize I gushed a lot about this. Um, there, you know, I'm, I'm, there are criticisms. I'm I'm sure that we can we can get into where there are parts of it with the savagery and things that are heavy handed, and that we, we seems that we only see a lot more of the horror and not enough of the what the non can portray, uh, which is the advantage of a comic book because it acts as a series and can portray the downtime and stuff. Uh, and it doesn't detract from the story because it's a serialized thing where else you have to keep this movie tight and keep the pace going. And maybe I am praising the movie a little too much. But like I said, it's the first film I wanted to talk about. I know chronologically it is not the first. In fact, when I was making up my list of movies I want to talk about, if I decided if I was going to start chronologically, I would probably start with The Quiet American the uh, novel by Graham Greene, and there's two film versions, one from, I think, the late 50s or early 60s, and another one from the previous decade, which has uh, Michael Caine in it. But I chose Platoon because, A, it's incredibly famous. 
if if you're making a short list of Vietnam films, a, a top five or a five Vietnam films films that are must see, you've got Platoon, The Deer Hunter, Apocalypse Now, Full Metal Jacket, Coming Home, probably probably those, and then you start going on into some of the other ones. So Platoon is essential, and it came out around the same time as Nam. And uh, and and so when you have these two things coming out at the same time, and one not influencing the other, and I think it's really important to note that because um, in the letter columns that we read, a lot of people have been referencing Platoon, maybe mainly because it was um, you know this was uh, now now we're starting to get toward eighty eight, but um, but when we were in the early part of the of the book and people were going on and on in the letter columns it was uh it was because the nom had been uh, the nom had been out and platoon had been out and people had seen platoon and platoon like i said had made an enormous amount of money um but it's not like it's not like jim shooter or larry hama or doug murray went and saw platoon and said i want to make this movie into a comic book it just happened at the same time. So it's great to see that, okay, this is what we're looking at, and this was also was out at the same time because Full Metal Jacket would come out later that year and then you'd have other movies that would kind of come out in their wake uh, with some diminishing returns on those. And this is essential. It's essential to know uh, one of the stories uh, of the war. Next time out, uh, we're going to return to the NOM. We're going to pick up the tail end of our second year of NOM stories. Until then, I hope you did enjoy this look at Platoon. Uh, if you're interested in watching it, uh, it was available for streaming on Netflix for a time, but I think they took that down around New Year's Day when their kind of contract on it expired. But you can rent the DVD. The DVD is available, and the Blu-ray, it is on Blu-ray as well, and it's not very hard to come by. And it's not very hard to find. It may even show up on cable every once in a while. I don't tend to see it. But um, Platoon's not a very hard movie to track down. And I would uh, recommend it. If you're going to go through Amazon.com to purchase it, of course, don't forget to go through TrueFreaks.com. Help out a few friends and some great podcasts. And uh, I'll be back next time with the NOM. I believe it's issue 19. So until then, thank you for listening and take care. You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and as this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes, and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which you can find at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com and may likely be read on the air as I occasionally do email-centric episodes or segments. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom.